Hey, fa- hey, folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellish Podcast, a podcast focused on product stories, product storytellers, interesting brand ambassadors, and any other tangent that I happen to come up with. Whether you're a bourbon fan, a geek, a casual observer, or someone just floating through this channel, I hope you find what I have to say interesting. If you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. Hopefully, I can be found on any podcasting platform that exists. And if you can't find me on a platform, send me an email. It is embellishpod at gmail.com, and I'll try to get that taken care of. Also, generally live stream the recording of these episodes on YouTube on Wednesday nights around 930. You can find all of my links on Instagram at embellishpod or Twitter with the same handle. I have a website. It is www.embellishpod.com. It's also a place to pick up these links, episode details, and more. Today is June the 6th, and we are talking to Shelly, who is a published author and a whiskey pro. Thank you for joining me, Shelly. You are very welcome and exceptionally welcome for calling me a whiskey pro because, uh, you know, I, I always get uh, asked that question about, are you an expert? And I uh, I feel like the definition of an expert is somebody who has made like absolutely every single mistake that can be made in a really, really tiny, narrow field. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I don't even think I qualify for that just yet. But uh, wh- whiskey enthusiast, absolutely. Whiskey educator, that would be me. Yeah. So I'll say um, in the last few years, you know, I've, I've, I've only had this podcast for a year and some change, but in the last few years, I've read a lot of whiskey books and that's kind of where you're at right now is you're, you're launching a book tomorrow, which is super, super exciting. And I applaud anyone who ever does that. Yeah. Um, this is the thing that I found is that it's a really crowded space for men and um, they seem to be concerned early in a book, any whiskey book, announcing their pedigree, their monumental amounts of research, sort of a punching and poking effect. And it seems this this book that you've written to me seems real fluid. And I'll be honest, I, I've not read it entirely, but I've made it far enough that I can use the the back flap of the dusk jacket as the bookmark instead of the front flap. So we're over halfway <laughs> through the book at this point. Um, I love it. But that's a good unit of, the, of measurement. I'm going to use yeah, that. Yeah, well, that's, that's how I, that's how I read, you know, that's, I'm never going to keep up with a bookmark, but the dust jacket will stay. Right. So yeah. that's a good way to, to do it. But um, there's, there's a quote in there. I want to start with this one and I appreciate it entirely because uh, if, if you floated around anything that I've done, I don't do a ton of tasting notes because oftentimes they're a little esoteric and a little snobby, but you have this, this, this quote in here. It's very early on the book. It says, I took another sip and I closed my eyes. Everything about today filtered through my mind, the scent of smoldering peat fires, the gray smudge of the sky that released only in a constant mist instead of a day ruining downpour. And it continues with a whole lot of memory based correlation for a tasting. You're not saying I taste peat. I taste, I, I taste all these things. You're tasting a memory. And that's, how I taste as well. And I truly, truly appreciate that. And it feels more inclusive for everybody. Right. And that's what this book is to me. I I think uh, that memory is such an incredibly important part of uh, not just whiskey, you know, specifically whiskey for, for you and I, but for, for everything that we smell and everything that we taste, because our brains are super powerful organ, right? Where that hippocampus is just releasing it's it's connected to when that scent was first uh encountered in your in your life and it leaves this impressionable mark uh and and every time you encounter that scent or that flavor again thereafter you are uh, there's you know there's some neurostimulation that happens and if it was a really great memory then you know all that great warm feeling and emotion just comes flooding back and and yeah who wouldn't want that in liquid form right 
Absolutely. And that's, I think that's the special thing that brown spirits specifically have, right? Now, you don't find a ton of people who, you know, order an LIT and they start talking about their really fond memory. They have a memory that's attached to an LIT <laughs> and it's probably something from college and it yes. may or may not be fond, but there's just some, some transportative nature of most brown spirits and specifically whiskey. Uh, one of the things that I, faulted myself and you know during the pandemic we did all the things that everybody did we did virtual tastings with coworkers because it was a chance to like have human interaction and somebody had shared some whiskey with me and the first thing i you know i smelled it and the first time i ever smelled it, i was like this smells like in in the 80s when you would buy a new pair of tennis shoes and it had that leather smell mm. very distinct leather smell which mm -hmm. was really fond to me but it was not fond to the person who had given it to me they remembered it with a very very different sense and so being able to build out the description of your memory is really, really important. So you can communicate that it is a fond one, not just saying this smells like a new shoe from the eighties, right? Because that's not the same. Well, you know, you make some really good points, John, in that um, what might have started off as a really bad memory for you can actually transcend into something really good is, is if you, if you are putting yourself in a, in a, a warm and welcoming kind of environment or something totally different and, and restructuring, trying to rewiring uh, those neuroreceptors to, to respond differently to it. But, we, you know, we as human beings, we, we don't make a good practice of memorizing scent. And therefore, you know, when we're nosing a whiskey or a glass of wine or whatever spirit or, or liquid you happen to be smelling or food, actually it's, it's more liquid based. But if you happen to be nosing that and that, object that you associate with that scent is absent. We get really frustrated because we don't practice memorizing scents. So uh, my work, part of my work is where I am surrounded by uh, all these vials filled with alcohol and aroma compounds, and I'm constantly memorizing and memorizing. But uh, at work, we we use, I've created uh, aroma wheels and flavor wheels, everything that has, you know, uh, the organic compounds that are within those um, those mash bills and whatnot for our whiskeys so that we can jog our memories to say, oh, that's right. You know, because you're sitting there sniffing something and saying, oh, what is this? What is this note in here that I just can't put my finger on? And uh, somebody happens to shout green pepper and you're like, that's it. You know, but it's, it's frustrating, I think. So as human beings, we should probably practice a little bit more taking advantage of, of our noses and how talented they really are. <laughs> Yeah, I find myself I'll go to a whiskey event and then I come home and, you know, I'll pick up my water and give it a good nose. And I'm like, oh, you know, because <laughs> you get into that vein of like just doing the same thing over and over again. But being more intentional about what you're consuming is a good thing. I, I have to say one of the uh, most humbling lessons I ever had was uh, at a fancy schmancy restaurant in New York, real posh place about uh, two decades ago. Uh, when uh, somebody came to me and handed me a water menu. And I laughed like a hyena. I thought it was mm -hmm. the most ridiculous thing ever. And then I I was course corrected very quickly by the very patient waitstaff who said, believe it or not, your water has many different flavors and here's why. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that that is something I think I will, I will never forget is... Uh, Oh, fantastic. I think I froze. Lost. 
Oh, there we are. <laughs> was that me or is that you? I, I, I saw both me. of us leave the, <laughs> leave the screen. I thought, oh no. Yeah, I think that might have been me. I'm going to encourage the, the 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 roommates that I have. You know, my my wife and children. Let's, let's decrease the internet consumption for a little bit. <laughs> Sorry about that. No worries. But, so you had a, you had a, I've not I've not ever heard of a water menu, but I learned very at a very very young age that there was a difference in water. Um, I grew up in rural Western Kentucky, which means everybody's on a well. And we have pretty good water, you know, that, that limestone shelf extends over here. But we moved to Lexington, Kentucky, so my mom could go to pharmacy school at University of Kentucky. And we were on municipal water at that point, which was treated. And so we learned very, very quickly that, you know, if you go to rural Kentucky, it tastes one way. Rural Tennessee, it's another way. Lexington is a whole other way. And Mexico, just take a pass, you know. Well, when, when we think about water uh, in the process of distillation, it is hugely, hugely influential, influential, you know, um, uh, where I always tell people that uh, water in our distillery, basically just just distilling whiskey is a matter of subtracting and adding water at every single stage of production, right? So we, we add water to our mash and then we subtract water through heating and distillation. And then we add water to the distillate into the barrel. Uh, and then we subtract water from those barrels via evaporation uh, in the warehouses. Then we add water to most uh, bottles. And then, you know, if we're consumers, we add water to some drams. And uh, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that water doesn't have an influence in the end product because they're like, oh, you know, mm -hmm. if water is going, if the water has any kind of minerality or flavor to it, that distillation process will just strip it all. But then there's the what happens after distillation. So there right. is a great consideration for distillers to be thinking about, you know, we, we have uh, the what choice of water you have that's going into those barrels as the maturation process is happening. And then what choice of water is going to be going into those bottles, those that proofing water uh, and that finishing water. So all these minerals uh, that are present, whether it's you know from a municipal water source or it's rainwater source, there, there are compounds present, there are chemicals present, you know, so we, we've got gases and mineral dust and mineral crystals and, and other compounds. Uh, we've got herbicides and pesticides that you know contaminate our waters as well and geosmin i mean there's just it, it it goes on and on and of course water also uh, uh contributes to a viscosity as well so it's mm -hmm. hugely important yeah okay so i'm gonna have to backtrack a little bit because you've said a whole bunch of different things so you've you've mentioned neuroreceptors and wiring and brain chemistry and <laughs> proofing water so like you you're an author right so you've written this book you are a director of distillery education you've also written some young adult novels like what is what is your professional background that's putting you on this are you just like a, an acquirer of knowledge i'm a musician yeah a musician what what, yeah. what instrument <laughs> actually i uh, studied uh, all instruments from a very, very early age. Mostly we started off with strings and keyboards in my house and it was, uh, you know, music came before our homework did. It was a, a bit of a crazy uh, Von Trapp family type of a thing, only uh, switched the singing to the to the musical instruments. Although the singing was there as well because I studied opera and toured with a bunch of big band swing orchestras, but that was my first career and it was mm -hmm. not at all STEM related. It was just, soaked in the arts uh, mm -hmm. and had had I had a parent 
who had shoved me toward chemistry or biology or, uh, or, or, you know, maths and sciences, I think I probably would have turned out to be like a food chemist or something. So all of my, my, um, scientific learning is autodidactic. Everything has come from either uh, books or courses or mentors. A lot of my learning has come from mentoring. So I make sure that I find uh, extraordinarily smart people and I befriend them. And then I do something where they feel like they owe me a kidney in the end. And so <laughs> I can go and ask them anything at any time. <laughs> they, they will answer <laughs> my mm -hmm. questions. It it seems to have worked. Like I said, you've 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 got this this breadth of knowledge, and we're, you know, ten minutes in maybe, and you know, I've I've already heard enough things to be like, oh wow, this is there. There's a lot of a uh, lot of knowledge to be gained here. So you you started off with a music background, and you've shifted into something that might be considered STEM related. And I've seen, it, what I've seen in the whiskey industry in the United States specifically, there's a bunch of people that are coming from tech and very STEMI backgrounds and moving into whiskey for the artistic expression of it, because I've always, I've always sort of felt like, you know, there's this mixture of science and alchemy and, and art that kind of goes into whiskey specifically. And it, it creates this really unique cross section of personality types. And it seems like all of those personality types live in your brain at one time. Which is <laughs> I agree. I have always thought of, of, of whiskey and writing as this panoptic crossroads where, you know, I tried to bring in, uh, science and culture and folklore and mythology and great keen craftsmanship and history and music, all the things that that go into the creation of this incredible spirit, no matter where it is that it's made in the world. It doesn't it doesn't matter. So, you know, my book, uh, Make It a Double, is is based mostly in uh, I'd say, you know, three quarters of it is based on my Scottish uh, learning adventures and uh, disasters. Uh, and then the the last quarter is everything that has happened to me in America and, you know, joining uh, a distillery, an American distillery and starting to work with them and for them uh, in creating American spirits. So uh, I had a, a very sharp learning curve once I left the the warm and welcoming bosom of Scotland and, and ended up having to learn about the world, the ballsy world of bourbon. And it is a very, very different world. And so I feel like. Uh, as far as, you know, spectrum of learning, I'm really, I always just feel like I'm really, really on the, the edge of the beginning of, uh, of my American whiskey knowledge. So I, I'm constantly listening and asking the questions that most people are too afraid to ask because I, I you know, I want to know. I'm just really, really curious. Right. Yeah, there's, there's no such thing as a dumb question, but sometimes we get smart enough that we think that it is a dumb question. <laughs> um, so I, I'm not missing that. You, you said in there that you've, you know, you've been a part of starting an American distillery, making American spirits. And I wanted to kind of drill into that one specifically because you didn't say bourbon, you said American spirits. So what all does that entail? Because I assume it's more than just bourbon. If you're kind of, you know, taking it to a higher level than just a, a single spirit category. Yeah, well, uh, Reservoir Distillery is where I work, and that's in Richmond, Virginia. And they've been um, established uh, since 2008. I love, love, love one thing specifically about Reservoir. It really appeals to my brain and to my taste buds, and that is they do something so unique. I have to say we do something so unique because I've been working with them for a few years now. But um, we offer our customers the ability to try single-grain 
whiskeys. So everything that you would typically find in an American bourbon mash bill or American whiskey mash bill, we do 100% corn, 100% wheat, and 100% rye. And specifically, people have the opportunity to say, do I know what rye or what corn or what wheat tastes like on its mm -hmm. own? And then the second much more important question, a little bit more hefty in its relevance is, does it appeal to my palate, <laughs> right? And then, I mean, because it's really difficult if you're, you're picking up a beautiful bourbon with this lovely mash bill of, you know, corn, wheat, rye, and sometimes barley thrown in there, and mm -hmm. you're trying to make all these, these scent differentiations and you don't know necessarily what does rye taste like or what does it smell like when right. it's on its own. So it's difficult enough for us to parse out all of those aromatic compounds on their own, but trying to just parse out what does the grain smell like by itself. So that I, I, I love the fact that they uh, do that, but we also do uh, other different blends with our whiskeys. We do all different kinds of finishes uh, and, um, you know, we, we, we've got a, a whiskey right now that um, we've just added some barley to. So we're, we're finally, you know, entering that that four grain territory, which has sort of been uh, a, a, a hopeful part for me because I am obviously I've cut my mm -hmm. teeth on barley. Uh, so it really, really appeals to me. It's our Hunter and Scott bourbon and it's just fantastic. Uh, but then we do lots of collaborative work with people um not just within our local vicinity because our distillery is located in this super super cool artsy fartsy section of richmond um where there are nine breweries and and three cideries and a, a winery and a meadery and just all this wild yeast that is just floating right. through our doors and contributing to our fermentation tanks you know it's contributing all this interesting flavor uh to our mash bills and whatnot um but it's the it's the process of working with some of these other people, these these breweries or these meaderies or these wineries or cideries to say, all right, let's collaborate. Let's do something fun and artistic and, a, you know, a one off. So we've got all different kinds of whiskeys that we finish in stout casks and milk stout casks and uh, and wine finishes. We we just finished this incredible um, uh, collaboration with uh, a cognac company. Um, called Francois Boyer, where for a year during COVID, uh, we Zoom called our team with their distillery team and spent uh, a lot of time learning about one another's processes. And uh, eventually we all decided that what we were going to do is we were going to exchange casks. So we sent them a bunch of rye casks. They sent us this beautiful 400 liter limousine uh, cask that had a 16 year old um, uh, cognac in it. We just, uh, you know, they were passing ships in the night. We each got our, our barrels and we filled it up with our spirits, our matured spirits. And we aged them for a little bit longer or just you know, did the finishing process a little longer. And then uh, we created the same labels and we, you know, released them and did our marketing stuff. Sold out of that stuff so fast. I, it right. made my head spin. But we, we all both agreed it was such a, a wonderful learning process. And also the results were so good that we're doing it again. So. Yeah, I was gonna say that because it was in in 2021. One of the best bourbons that I had was one that was finished in a cognac barrel, and there's just some of that cognac and armagnac that just lends itself, I think, to to finishing American whiskeys. Um, you, you mentioned in there the 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 shift to being able to do a four grain, and you sort of tease that you know you have a strong background in Scotch. I think that in the North American whiskey marketplace, like American single malt has the biggest 
room for growth. Are you guys going down the path or is that, that a... <laughs> I, I am always tooting that horn, but um, you know, our company is sort of a, a medium sized uh, craft mm -hmm. distillery. So at the moment we have uh, all employees wearing multiple different hats. So everybody is sort of stretched thin as we're just trying to keep up with the demand as it is. And it right. keeps growing. Um which nobody's complaining about, right? We're all really very excited about this. Right, uh, but it, it can limit innovation. It, it can. Well, certainly I know that our founder and CEO um, dreads the moment I walk into his office and I knock on the door and I'm like, hey, I have an idea. <laughs> and he, he, he says, close the door. Your ideas are very expensive. Um, right. But, you know, they're, they're, they are very enthusiastic. And I do a little mm -hmm. research, you know, before I present them now. Sometimes I'll even do like a PowerPoint just to be like, look at this before you say no, look at this. But right. um, we did both uh, Dave, Dave Cutno and I, uh, he's, he's the uh, founder and CEO of, of Reservoir. We did uh, do a barley bottle uh, about three years ago, three and a half years mm -hmm. ago. Um, and we put them in five gallon casks. Those guys are, you know, definitely ready to be bottled by now. And uh, and then we had another couple of team members who also uh, distilled some barley. So we we fooled around with the grain a little bit. But this uh, this issuing of ours, the Hunter and Scott Bourbon, is the first one that we've actually, uh, you know, contributed barley to our regular mash bill of of all these different grains. So we're really excited about it. All right, let me. I've got I've got notes spread everywhere because this is how it always ends up happening. Um, I'm drinking. Are you drinking? Are you drinking something? What do you? I have? I am drinking something. I I'm drinking. Uh, this is uh this is a, a Port Charlotte ten year old. It's a it's a it's heavily peated. It's an Isla Malt. I don't know if you're into Isla Malts or anything like this, but so uh, so my my Scotch collection is very very small. It fits on a tiny. Well, let me say. <laughs> my non-american single malt collection because there's some scotch over there and then there's also some um single malt from australia that, that's sitting over here as well Oh, lovely which one uh, so it's starward oh that's fantastic mm. um yeah we we are just opening uh in australia as well so our whiskeys are um we, we have a, a lot of uh, a lot of fans in australia and we're hoping to create more than we can handle but we, we're very excited about australia and australian whiskeys and just the fact that there are so many uh hearty australian whiskey drinkers out there so yeah there seems to be a pretty strong thirst for it the they've got a, a brand ambassador here in the united states that also has a podcast and um he and i are talking about doing something together but he's the one that actually um connected me with this i got to do a tasting during the pandemic and then i'm like hey i need to find some of this because I, you know, there's not a ton of scotch in western kentucky to begin with because we're in the heart of bourbon country uh -huh. and then you say no wait i need some australian single malt and they <laughs> are like why are you why are you even in here where, where where do you think you are and so yeah he connected me with that but um my my scotch collection is incredibly incredibly limited so we're just we're floating on some macallan double oak tonight on so um, McAllen, is that what you said double you're doing? Yeah, twelve year double oak. Wow, how lovely! I I uh, visited McAllen this last year uh, and um, felt totally outpriced uh, by them. Uh, it's it's a beautiful new. You know, I saw the old McAllen uh, Distillery, which I. Mm -hmm was in love with. It's, it's a very romantic place for me to see, you know, um, just the, the, the old buildings and uh, how, how things used to be run. And now the brand new 
incredible architecture of of McAllen. It, I mean, it's jaw droppingly interesting, and mm-hmm. sort of you know, it's it's built a little bit like a Hobbit house. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of it, but not the name. It, it, it is a little bit, a little bit hobbitish, um, but gorgeous. The facility is, you know, a, they, they spent a few pretty pennies on it. Um, but, but for me, walking into the McAllen uh, is, is a feeling that doesn't invite a whole heck of a lot of, of warmth to me, just because I feel like it is way above my, uh, you know, what, what the, the pennies in my purse can handle. And, uh, as much as I would like to try some of the expressions that they have, other other different whiskeys that they're making, I just I can't see auctioning off a kidney in order to do that. Right. Yes. Yeah. And that's that's becoming more and more prevalent even in American bourbon as well. Like that's that's uh-huh. there are places you sort of get priced out of the game. Um, it's but, such a shame, isn't it? Because what we want to do is invite more people into this arena rather than make it exclusive and. Yeah. Uh, you know, an, an only club for, for those who can afford to pay the ticket prices. Uh, you know, I, I want people to try as much as they possibly can from as many places as they can possibly reach. Uh, and so, you know, and there are a lot of distilleries out there in the world, right? When we were thinking about like Scotland, you've got 130 distilleries that are operational mm-hmm. or so at the moment. When we give color to that and and, and bring it to America, we've got 2,000 different craft yes. distilleries. So there's a lot of option out there. Um, one has to be particular, right? Specific mm-hmm. and do a little hunting. I think that's that. That is the silver lining to me in the being priced out of certain things is that. It, the fact that we're being priced out of things indicates that there's a there's a there's this boom of of bourbon consumers, but it's also creating a significant marketplace for craft to exist. Uh, you know, because if we go back twenty years, the number of craft distilleries was in the hundreds, not in the thousands, right? Right. And because we can't all you know be picking up the the Michter twenties and the you know uh, the the higher end bottles. We're looking for something unique, and that is exactly what craft is. And it gets it back to, you know, if we talk about whiskey being sort of this uh, this American spirit, you know, this non-malted barley whiskey spirit. Um, there were thousands of distilleries pre-prohibition, pre-Civil War, and getting back to this, it, it feels better to me. Like I, I I appreciate it, and so yeah, it sucks to be proud out of some stuff, but there's. I'm sure you get the question too, like, what's your favorite whiskey? And and my answer is always, I don't know. I haven't tried them all yet. There's so many that are out there now that I will never be able to try it all, but I'm determined to try. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think uh, it, it's like answering the question, have you completely evolved as a human being, this is as much as you're ever going to grow as a person, right? You're asked that question every year or every 10 years and you're like, yeah, this is it. I'm not changing my mind about anything else. I am solidly set. And then 10 years later, you ask, you're asked that same question and you look back at your former self and you're like, that person knew nothing. Oh my God. I don't think that way at all. It's the same way I feel about whiskey, which is every year I, I might have a different favorite because of something new that I tried or somebody new who, who taught me something or, or you know, uh, a, a new visit to a different distillery or, or a chat with a, another distiller. Um, or I'm introduced to a new mentor and then I just, you know, suck their brain full of, of every bit of information I can get. And suddenly I look at whiskey a whole new way. Uh, and I, I think the answer to that question is it depends on the year. 
It really depends yeah. on the year. And it can be even smaller than it depends on the year. It can depend on the year and the price point and the, what did I just eat? You know, I try to develop a rule and I'm, I'm working on this. I want to develop my own tasting sheet because I won't say whether I like whiskey or not until I've tried it three times because there's so many environmental influences that could impact whether I think it's good today or not. You know, right. we had spaghetti for dinner tonight and maybe this doesn't go well after spaghetti, but it might in two or three weeks. And so I'm not going to write one off. Now there are some things that you'll taste and just there's a default or this defect within the whiskey. You're never going to get around that, but that's rarely the case in anything I'm going to be able to buy on the shelf. It's just, yeah, those, I, didn't, those, I didn't like it that day. Those faults uh, and the taints that you find in a whiskey, those are pretty apparent, you know, straight mm-hmm. away. Certainly if you are uh, training your tongue and your nose in order to recognize that stuff. So yeah, I probably wouldn't, force myself to try something twice or three times if I'm like, this is right. just Geosman, you know, why would I want something that tastes like dirt unless I really love the flavor of beets and dirt. But um, I, I, I think that there's a rule of thumb I have, uh, which is I never give people tasting notes in any of the classes that I teach or courses mm-hmm. um, because everybody is so biologically different from one another. And what I taste, you might not, and what, I, what you smell, mm-hmm. I might not. And, and, you know, if a whole room full of people is like, I've got coconut and you're the only person who doesn't get coconut, it doesn't mean you're not trying hard enough, right? It, it, it just right. means that there's a specific neuroreceptor that is not turning on in your brain and you mm-hmm. may never, never get coconut. But for you, that might be a really disappointing and sad whiskey. But for the rest of the world, right. they're like, this is thousands of dollars worth for every dram that you should, you know, try. It's just not your jam. That's not your jam. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and your reference point for coconut may not be the same as most people's reference point for coconut. And I, the problem one I use is that, you know, everybody says, oh, you know, Brown Foreman is going to give you bananas. But what do you mean by bananas? Do you mean artificial banana flavor that's on banana runs? Do you mean a non-ripe banana? Do you mean an overripe banana? <laughs> do you mean bananas foster? Because those are all different banana flavors. This and if really all fun. you know yeah, is banana runs, you're not going to get it. You, 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 it's almost verbatim, uh, a line that I teach in my class where I say to people, I, I, I would really hope that you're going to drill down into something and not just say this tastes of banana, because we all know that banana has a flavor spectrum based on time. Right. right? So that I, I go through that same thing. Uh, is it green, unripe, ripe, overripe, rotten? Is it caramelized? Right. So it's just, you can't just say banana. You to benefit yourself, you want to spend a few more minutes just asking, yeah. well, what kind of banana? Yeah, it can be the first level of the note, but you got to go deeper. But if the only coconut you ever knew was coconut rum because you just didn't eat anything coconut, and you might not have liked that, then coconut may not be a you know like you may not get that same flavor of coconut that everybody else got because they're getting yeah. fresh shaved or whatever else. Well, um, also, I just feel like it's some sometimes it can be an uh, a, a means of making a person feel like they don't belong, right? If they're not getting a specific note, then they feel like, oh, I actually don't belong in this class or I don't belong with this group of people. And uh, maybe I'm not very talented in nosing and tasting. And that's a terrible thing to to offer up to them, that feeling of like futility. Well, I'm just going to take my marbles and go home. I'm not a good whiskey drinker. And you think, no, 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 no. (laughs) Nosing and tasting is so very humanly specific. And you just have to learn how to develop those skills yourself so that you can enjoy your own palate, your own nose. And that's, it's a, a last weekend, was it last weekend? I can't, yeah, I guess it was, um, on 
Sunday I was at Mictors doing a tour with one another podcaster and they brought out their um, celebration, which is a blend of like 19 to 30 year bourbons. And everybody in the room, all the people that are with us are like, oh, I've got to give my tasting notes. I need to know what this is. And they, you know, they look down at me and this other guy and they're like, what are your tastes? I'm not giving any. This is just good. Like I, I can stop there. Right. Because number one, providing a tasting note is going to be exclusive. Number two, I'm not ever going to try anything like this again. Like there's not going to be anything to compare it to. And if I tell someone else who's never going to try this whiskey, what it tasted like, it just, it was really, really good. And I can stop there, but then there's other stuff. You know, we were all sitting around drinking the same green river that just got released or this, even this McAllen double Oak. I can wait and let you tell me what you taste and I'll tell you what I taste. And then we can try to find a way to connect them, you know, and, and, and that's more fun to me. But we spent a good amount of time talking about, uh, you know, tasting and, and, and nosing. Like, what what do you do to get yourself better at that? Like, is there is there a kit? Is there a course? Is there like, yes. how, how do well, we get better? I, I teach a nosing and tasting course. Uh, I teach a, you know, a really simplified uh, 101 masterclass to people who are new to bronze spirits. And then I teach a lot more, you know, a, a little heavier on the science and whatnot, you know, where where we're discussing things like um I, I think it's incredibly fascinating, you know, how you're nosing a whiskey, how the, the shape of a glass is so important mm -hmm. because that tulip shaped glass uh, brings those aromatic compounds right up to the, the rim of the glass and then straight through your nose to the, the back of the nasal cavity where you've got a small patch of tissue. It's called the olfactory epithelium. And it houses about 400 of your body's olfactory receptors. And I know that that doesn't sound like a whole heck of a lot when, you know, you're thinking about like uh, our canine friends or our feline friends. But uh, it's it's uh, when you compare those 400 receptors binding with single molecules or a combination of molecules, our body can identify anywhere between 100 million and 1 trillion different odorants. So that's seriously nothing to sneeze at. There's so much for us to, to gain by training our noses. And I tell people to uh, practice with scents all around their home, right? Whether it's just spices in your spice cabinet, or if you're really into, or perfumes that you have, any anything that emits an aroma that has you know volatility, just start spending some time without spending any money, start spending mm -hmm. some time recognizing what is in your immediate vicinity around you. Just you're out walking and you happen to be caught by the smell of a restaurant of, you know, whatever it is, Chinese uh, grease that's frying in the back. And sometimes that's great mm -hmm. for some people and it's horrible, but you can start to just identify uh, by closing your eyes and focusing in on, on, on all that, those aromatic compounds. And sometimes I have people who will tell me that, um, with their nosing a whiskey, they or a spirit, it's just alcoholic fumes, and they're not getting anything inside their glass. And I have a trick for that, which is really, really cool. So uh, you take a finger, hopefully it's clean. If it's not, ask to borrow somebody else's, and you dip it into your whiskey, and then dab it on the back of your hand in any place that doesn't have like perfume or cream on it, and then blow on it until that liquid is evaporated. And what's happened is you've basically, you've, uh, the alcohol has evaporated, but what remains on your skin are those aromatic compounds. And it's so much easier for people to start identifying mm -hmm. what it is that they're smelling. And then uh, again, because, you know, as humans, we don't, we don't memorize scents very well. I encourage people to find um, uh, 
aroma wheels or or flavor wheels that you know might be able to jog your memory as far as what it is that you're smelling and um, start memorizing scents. It's just such a fun way to practice a skill. You know, mm -hmm. practice makes perfect. You've, you've got to do it with repetition. And who doesn't want to repeat practicing smelling and tasting a whiskey? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and instead of the figure thing, one of the things that I, I had seen on a video is Freddie Johnson for Buffalo Trace. He'll put it in a Glen Cairn and he'll slosh it up on his hand and then rub his hands together like this and then smell the inside of his hand so he can he can get some of the alcohol out, but then he can still cap and capture it inside of his open hands. And, and, and he does that. And that works pretty well for me, but I generally yeah. try to keep my hands out of my whiskey too. So. <laughs> there, there was a, a distiller who um, I spent a little time with working um, at Brook Lottie. And when I was doing an internship there, this is a, a distillery on Isla. And uh, he had me in the still room you know, showing me some important things about the equipment and whatnot. Uh, but he had me come over to the spirit safe and he opened it up and poured a sample of the whiskey straight. He just like, hold your hands out, poured that, uh, that distillate right into my hands. And he said, no, rub it in there and let it evaporate. And then tell me what it is that you smell. And after a couple of seconds, I gave my hands a good smell. And I said, uh, well, I'm getting bread and soap. And he said, Ah, you're the first person who's washed your hands today. Uh, <laughs> but the bread part is really good as well. You know, but mm -hmm. there, it was just one, that was like the first moment that I, I had that, uh, that experience of, of having the alcohol. Uh, and, you know, that's high proof alcohol coming off the still right there. But that was really yeah. cool to start saying, what does a distillate smell like, right? Can it give you any clues as to what it's going to smell like once it's in the barrel, having aged and matured for, uh, so many months, so many years. And, uh, you know, what, wh where are those, those markers that might, you know, give you some sort of classification as far as what, what's in store for it. I love that. Yeah. So, so you mentioned it here. And so I've got in here this note, you, 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 you did a, uh, course internship, whatever at Buclati. So, so what was this course? What was it like? Like, this is, this is, I want to hear about this. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, beforehand, I, I had talked myself right out of it. It was, you know, something I was really nervous to do. Um, it was something I felt I wasn't qualified to do because I hadn't studied, uh, you know, science or, or engineering or chemistry. And, and, uh, and I, I thought I was going to be completely lost with all the other people who were doing the internship with me. Um, so I basically talked myself right out of it. And I do go through the entire, I go through the entire miserable adventure and wonderful mm -hmm. adventure in the book, uh, step by step, which I think is important because it's a learning process, right? You, you do something that scares yourself so much so that you're on the precipice of refusing that experience because you just don't have the, the guts, the wherewithal, the, the, you know, the, whatever it is that it takes in order to um, to accomplish that. But I did because at that point I had young children and I really wanted to be an example of doing something that was challenging, that was out of my reach and that I felt uh, I was going to have to seriously do some growing in order to accomplish. So um, traveled there and uh, all of the people who were in that internship with me were men. And of course that 
made it even more uncomfortable for me at that point because it definitely still felt like I was entering into an all boys clubhouse and how to explain to those guys who were very surprised. I mean, everybody there, you know, from the moment I got out of my car, they thought, oh, I was lost. I was, you know, looking for the gift shop or maybe I was, you know, I was going to be, you know, auditioning for one of the cooks, whatever it was, I was just definitely miscast and misplaced. And I had to work hard in the beginning uh, to prove to them that my curiosity was uh, the the thing that was going to see me through to the end of that of that uh, that little internship, and that I was going to absorb absolutely everything I possibly could from everyone who who knew something I didn't, uh, and 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 in the end, it was truly one of the best experiences I've ever had, and I made some very dear friends uh, from from those um, compatriots of mine. But it's always that that surprise that you get of uh, maybe not so much for me today, but certainly 25 years ago, it was anytime I knocked on a distillery door and I, I tried to get to talk to someone in production, someone on the production room floor or the distiller or the managing director, whatever it was, um, they would look at me askance and say, why are you interested in this? And, and I, you know, why do you want to see the fermentation tanks? Why, why do you want to look at the washbacks or the or the still or who cares about the 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 line arm and the pitch of the line arm? And I'd be like, I do. <laughs> I really, right. I want to know how this all creates flavor in the end. And could you unravel it? Because to me, it's just magic, right? I want to know how did this flavor get inside that glass and teach me everything. Because mm -hmm. uh, at, at this point, I was just insatiable. And uh, every time I went to a new distillery, I heard new stories, uh, whether it was the, the mechanical process, the actual production process of, of the making of it. Although that took a lot of years to, to drag out of a lot of people because, you know, proprietary information is something that people hold on to. And the Scots are very, very, very protective <laughs> of some of their 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 secrets and rightly so i think um, many of us are how do we create the flavor but then i think that at that particular time there were a lot of people who didn't know how their flavor was created and you know science has just jumped forward leaps and bounds since then since 25 years ago 20 years ago and we didn't know that much about wood chemistry we didn't know that much about fermentation times and and how yeast interacts and, and you know that yeast creates uh, alcohol, but it also creates flavor and all those things that are now much more understood and, and much more uh, sort of worldly accessible knowledge to just the average Joe. It's not that you only have to be an individual who has access to the production room floor. Now you can read books about it. Now you can read blogs about it. Now you can just uh, go to a podcast and somebody can tell you all about it. But that's part of the excitement, I think, for me in writing this book is that um, I know not everybody is going to have the time or the inclination or the money in order to do the travel that I did. And I want to bring all that mm -hmm. incredible information, those important facts and those fascinating things about whiskey to them in the in the form of, you know, two cardboard backs and a bunch of paper in between with some words on them. And I, th I think it's effective in there. And you, you said a few things that triggered a few different thoughts and, and memories for me. Um, you know, it, thinking about whiskey specifically, you know, it, it, the way to make whiskey was an oral tradition long before we ever understood any kind of science, right? It was, you do it this way because, 
And maybe it's the benefit of growing up in Western Kentucky where people still moonshine. But um, I've met some folks who can distill uh, and it's not to get really good at it. There's a science there to be able to do it. it, You can sort of make your way through it. But um, you also said something about um, doing something that sort of scares you. And a a number of years ago, uh, Garrison Keeler came to our town and did a, um, live broadcast of Prairie Home Companion. And so we went and watched, me and my dad did. And we're standing in line and he's like signing, you know, uh, posters. And the the person in front of me had written something. I don't remember what it was. And she's got a journal and she was like, hey, I would like for you to sign this. Is, I write him this all the time. And, and she was like, do you have any advice for me as an author? And he said, if you don't at least in one point in your life write something that scares the shit out of you, you're not doing it right. And so I, I sort of thought about that. I was like, you know, okay. So if I extract that out, because I'm not an author, I'm, I'm, I'm not an, a writer at all. But if I extract that out to everything else, like if you never take a chance that scares the shit out of you, then you're probably not doing it right. And so, you know, kudos to you for, for taking the step and, and doing the thing. Um, you know, I similarly chased down an MBA just to prove to my kids that I could do something that was a little bit tough because you know, I did that 10 year path to college like a lot of people do. Um, most of them are called doctors and uh, I was not, um, <laughs> but I got a lot of life experience in the process. Um, but you've got a ton, like a, a lifelong series of stories in this book that, that you've written out. Right. And it's, the, there's a lot of really fun stuff. Um, it's over a long period of time. When did you actually start writing this? Like, is this, is, did you have to piece this together after the fact or did you carry pieces along the way? No. Um, uh, so my very first experience with brown spirits, specifically with single malt scotch, was uh, at 22. And uh, I, I write in the book about how basically I became the, I transformed into the, the the female doppelganger of the green Mr. Yuck face, right? Just, it was awful. It was terrible, terrible. And I thought, why would anybody repeat this action a second time? It was just foul. And... And because of one person's patience and enthusiasm, and because all my future experiences thereafter with brown spirits were paired with things like, you know, um, uh, uh, history and science and folklore and mythology, again, you know, just those things that were so instrumental in making me understand what whiskey was, the definition of whiskey, um, I realized sort of in, in real time how critical those ingredients were to retraining my brain, rewiring my brain to accept something foreign, something I couldn't possibly have had any uh, any appreciation for because I lacked the foundation. You know, it's a little bit like taking your Joe Average fifth grader and tossing them into a calculus class. And it there's so much that they have to be exposed to before any of those hieroglyphics start to take shape and make sense and become beautiful in the end. And, and so the purpose of this book, um, which I started when I was 22, is to expose to people those critical and fascinating facts so that either their initial handshake with brown spirits or their next uh, interaction with a spirit is going to be much less intimidating and much more enticing. So I realized I wanted to track this as it was happening to me. And so I had a blog and I would write uh, these essays 
every week I would write an essay about whatever weird whiskey experience I was having or weird whiskey person I, I came across or ran into or hunted down and cold called on the phone just to ask questions too. And, um, and in the end, I, it wasn't like, oh, I'm planning to write a book. It was, oh, I'd really like to track this whole process from zero to hero where I went from, I can't stand this poisonous fall liquid to, oh my God, fathers, this is my life's work, right? Mm -hmm. How could... How could you not want to keep track of that? So um, I had a question. I'm not even going to ask this now, but um, the, the, the question was, what does the does a director of distillery education do? But you've already answered that like, <laughs> incredibly no. well. No, there's so much there's so much I do that nobody ever gets to see or hear or 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 talk about. And, you know, I mean. The one thing that drives me crazy is uh, because I have writing skills, I'm, I'm put to work in doing like the technical manuals and whatnot for, mm -hmm. for the distillery, which you know need to be done. People need to know how to operate them and what the 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 uh, not just the operational procedures, but how do you fix things when you know shit goes wrong. And uh, the criticisms that I got right away, straight away from Dave was, you know, you're a fiction writer, you cannot make all the equipment have dialogue. None of them are <laughs> going to have feelings. Got it? And I'm like. <laughs> This really sucks. I want it so badly because, I mean, how do you really get to know a piece of equipment or any person, right? By they have it. A, equipment has an attitude. You've worked on a piece of equipment long enough. It is cranky or unwilling or just singing along on one day. Mm -hmm. So, but that's not allowed technical manual wise. Yeah. But Every I do get to do all these really cool special projects. So not mm -hmm. just teach people not just, you know, write the manuals and whatnot, but I, I get to work with all of the incredible team members. Nick Vaughn is one of them. He's our, our barrel man. He's, his brain is always figuring out different scents that belong together, different flavors that are, uh, that are being married. And so I, I try to pay attention to his palate because it's so incredibly refined. He started off in the coffee world as well. So oh, yeah. he, he brought a lot of experience with him there. Um, and, you know, and then Dave Cutno who has just had a wealth of, of, uh, of experience within American spirits, uh, you know, specifically bourbon and whatnot, but there's just so much to learn from all of these guys. So it's not just that I am the teacher and the director of education there. They're all educating me as well. Yeah. And then of course we have, most importantly, I, I never want to forget talking about Mary Allison. She's our head distiller mm -hmm. and uh, what a, what a ballsy woman as well. She's just so dogged in her work and her effort and in creating uh, the spirits that, uh, that we have, the whiskeys that we're making. I I'm always impressed as to her dedication to, to her craft and to her work. Yeah. And it's, I've, I've had an opportunity to talk to one other, you know, female head distiller before. And I was on a zoom and you know, they were having a little tasting thing. And like, I made both my daughters come up cause I like want them to see that <laughs> I, you know, they could completely not be interested in whiskey at all. Although I'm pretty sure that my eight year old is going to be, um, but they could not, but being able to see women doing whatever they want to do is just, it's, it's fantastic. You know, because uh, you don't see a ton of that specifically in in whiskey market, the whiskey uh, marketplace. Anytime I go to a tasting event or a whiskey weekend or whatever, uh, everybody looks an awful lot like me, and yep. that's yeah. discouraging. It is such a different atmosphere uh, at Reservoir because um, Dave Cutno has realized the importance of bringing in, um, you know, this gender diversity that we have in our 
in our distillery, there are three women who are in uh, top leadership positions. So Mary Allison is our head distiller, myself as the director of distillery education. And then we have uh, Leslie Griles, who is our marketing and communications director. So the three of us uh, are, are oftentimes being pitched in front of media as like, look at this, three women in one small craft distillery. And and why? It's it's because the guys in the distillery recognize what it is that we possess and what we bring to the team. Uh, and and I'm, I'm ever so grateful for having that kind of mindset in my workplace. We are super lucky. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, the, there, there's, there's plenty of science out there to indicate that um, as men, we should be afraid of women in the whiskey marketplace because <laughs> you're generically going to be better tasters and smellers than we are. Biologically speaking, it's evolutionary, evolutionary response over time. Um, just by, by, by the nature of being a female, you're better at it. And so maybe that's it. But I mean, we, we, Look, we know I, I have read those academic papers. I've read those white papers that say uh, that women have a, a leg up to, to men, but I'm, I'm certainly not going to um, exclude outliers. There are plenty of men who have, you know, fantastic uh, palates and, and noses and whatnot. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe women are just extraordinarily lucky in, in that regard that there are more of us who can, you know, more finely tune a specific center or flavor. But, uh, but I, I think, I think it's a skill that all of us gets better at. So, um, so Reservoir Distillery, um, you know, you've got a pretty strong uh, diversity in, the, in, in your group. Um, you're in a region that is pretty unique with, you know, tons of potential wild yeast floating around. I assume, do you guys have open top fermenters? We do. We do. Okay. Uh, so that, that yeah. Would, yeah. So, okay. Uh, and, but you mentioned milk stout. Do yeah. you have a, a whiskey that is aging or has aged in a milk stout? We do. We have a whole series called the Holland series. And um, there, there's a guy here in Richmond, Virginia, uh, Mac McCormick, and he owns one of the largest, uh, the largest whiskey bar in all of Virginia. And he came into the distillery once and uh, said, look, I, one of my favorite whiskey, an old dusty 1960s it's no longer being made anymore this bourbon is is no longer in stock i'd really like to see if you might be able to recreate this flavor profile for me and so took him through a verticals and the, the rye and uh, nearly perfect. It's just missing one component. And that was barley because at the time we weren't using that grain in our mash bills. And uh, so we went to one of the local brewers and uh, got some uh, stout barrels. And uh, we, we put this, the already aged whiskeys inside, you know, that, that, that mash bill, that grain of those, of those three grains inside that uh, one barrel, aged it or just matured it for a little bit longer and then pulled that out. And it was apparently, according to Mac, a dead ringer for what it is that he wanted. Uh, and it was such a success that we've been doing that as, uh, as a, 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 a repeated thing. It's always on our, on our list. So that, that's Holland's Ghost. That's what it's called. Mm -hmm. And then we, we did a, a milk stout finish, which is called The Milkman, which is really awesome. Uh, same sort of profile. Uh, and then uh, uh, we also do one called... Um, uh, Blade Rummer, which is uh, that that 
same sort of combination of the mash bill, but it's been aged in a 25-year-old Jamaican rum cask. Uh, so, oh, I happen to have it right here. Look at that. My This is the, the blade rummer. I, I can never get that. That is Mac. Uh, that's mm -hmm. our guy. That's Holland, rather. Holland's ghost. But um, it's a it's a great, you know, this is done in a stout uh, rum barrel and uh, we're, it just tastes fantastic. So yeah, we love to experiment with stuff, but all three of those whiskeys, the Holland series, that's something that we sell all the time now because it's just really popular. So can you draft a portion of my paycheck out of my paycheck every month and just <laughs> send me these things? Because that, that, like finishes are, are, are fantastic and fun and they add a new dynamic into whiskey specifically. But as soon as you said milk stout, that's a thing that kind of, uh, you know, oh, I've had yeah. other stout finishes, um, and that is a tremendous one. Um, Dave, do we do we do the um, Holland series out in Kentucky? Mm -mm. We do not. Nope. But I'm going to be in Virginia. Oh, great! Yes, right. you'll have to stock up a whole trunk full. Yeah, they, the kids can stay in Virginia, and I'll just come home with whiskey. I've actually got a friend that lives out in Virginia <laughs> you as well. Do a so. greyhound that's really close to the distillery, so you just pop them on a bus. Yeah, yeah I mean, if he is coming to Virginia, he's got to come down. We've got all those great whiskeys. We, we've got all those great whiskeys. Yeah. <laughs> You're making a strong case. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot back to the book a little bit, and I'm <laughs> so I said earlier. Um, don't know a ton about scotch. I've actually got um, later on this week, the folks from Scotch Malt Whiskey Society are going to join me for a live stream. And they're going to take me through some scotch education because, uh, you know, I, I grew up in Kentucky. I know bourbon and 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 have learned rye. But but scotch is, is a new game for me. But I did know about Burns Night, right? Because I oh, have yeah. a really good friend um, who is super into scotch and mm -hmm. to the point like, he is a music director at a local high school and he plays the bagpipes for fun. It's just, a oh thing my God. Does, oh. right. And so, you know, he, we were talking about this, but I, so I read this description of burn this burns night event that you have. And I'm convinced that I should have one myself now. <laughs> Convince me I'm wrong. No, you're not. You're definitely not wrong. It just has to have all the right ingredients and it'll be perfect. Cause you know, they're either really great or they're just really uh, but it's it's the having good whiskey can make any of those really bad ones suddenly better than meh, you know. So mm -hmm. right. um, it's it's a combination of having it doesn't have to be Robert Burns poetry. It can just mm -hmm. be any poetry, any limerick, any piece of writing that somebody wants to bring to the table and offer up a, a dirty story, a funny uh, memory, a joke. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. A piece of you know Shakespearean sonnet. It's it's just. You stand up for a second and then you recite something. And usually you are so full of whiskey by that time that you yep. have no issue with stage presence or stage fright whatsoever. Uh, luckily, my wife is an incredibly talented, multi-talented individual, but has a ton of theater friends. So ah. stage fright's not a concern for, for yeah. most of the folks that might be around for this. But so it so so say I have this Burns Night event. What three bottles of scotch should I bring that lay the foundation for the night? attainable in North America, obviously, but what, what should I have there? Well, um, as uh, Scotland is, is parceled out into different uh, um, whiskey making regions. And at one point back in the late 80s, early 90s, Diageo uh, put together a, a classic malt uh, series where they, they tried to convince people that each of those regions possessed a flavor. And 
although maybe you know back then uh, those distilleries more were more representative of that specific flavor that they were assigning to them like you know Speyside is going to be more flowery and perfumed and, and mild and and Highland is going to be more stewed fruits and syrupy with a little bit of smoke and all the islands are going to be peat and smoke and brine you know you can choose something to represent each one of those uh, those regions, whether it's, you know, five regions or six regions, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, but um, you can just look instead, there's a guy by the name of Dave Broom, who's one of the most famous whiskey writers of all time, uh, UK guy, but, you know, in, in, like whiskey, scotch expert and Japanese whiskey expert, expert as well. Uh, but he likes to compartmentalize whiskey into flavor camps instead of the Scottish regions. And I think that that's a much better way to define a whiskey is through those flavor camps. So, you know, you're looking at uh, the the biscuity, uh, um, flowery, you know, more more flower notes. And I don't mean like floral notes. I mean, like actual red flower. Uh, and and then you've got, you know, the, the actual floral notes of heather and uh, and grassy notes and things. Then you have all the stewed fruits and, and uh, ripe fruits ripened fruits and then you have the smoky notes and the iodines and the medicinal notes and the phenolic notes so everything actually falls into a camp i mean you can just type into google dave broom's flavor camps and then all five of them pop up um but it's a it's a really great way to represent if you want to bring three bottles of scotch select three flavor camps you know one on either end of the spectrum and one smack dab in the middle Well, all right. We're at an hour and I can continue going, um, but I want to be cognizant of time and uh, make sure that uh, we, we don't we don't overextend your good graces for showing up. Um, so if you need to dip off, that's that's absolutely fine. No, you know, whiskey is my life and finding people who want to talk about whiskey is always such a surprise to me. I'm like, really? Oh, yeah. A, let, me, let me introduce you to all of Whiskey Tube and Whiskey Podcasting. They'll all <laughs> talk to you for as long as you want to talk to them forever and ever. Amen. And there's a bunch of us, you know, because uh, I made a joke to somebody the other day, you know, a, a year ago, year and a half ago, I thought, you know what? The world needs is another whiskey podcast. There's not <laughs> enough already out there. Um, so what's going on at your distillery right now that is, or is there anything well, that may be the wrong way to say what's going on at your distillery right now. That's interesting that we want to talk about. Well, um, I'm very excited because next week, Sunday, we're going to be having the launch of my book, which is great. Actually it comes out tomorrow, but um, the, the, the book itself uh, reservoir is going to be um, putting on a, a little launch party. So I'm, I'm super excited. And everybody's just been working so, so hard on my behalf to make this book a success. It, I always tell everybody that once you write a book and you hand in that manuscript, that's no longer your story, right? There are so many fingerprints that then uh, touch that that book from um, the agent who's who's reading it and who's critiquing it to you know the developmental editors, the copy editors, the proofreaders, um, the people who design the book jacket, you know the editor you're assigned at a publishing house. Uh, it's all you know, and I'm so so fortunate to have Pegasus as my uh, as my uh, my publisher. I, Jessica Case is the woman who's my my editor, and I. 
I, I feel constantly like every time I write a new book, I can't have a better experience than the one I just had. And it's happened again. So celebrating this book with all the people at the distillery who have been working so hard on my behalf, as well as, you know, just all the people who, who made this book go from my idea into, you know, a, a pages on, you know, something tangible. That's just really, really exciting for me. Uh, but then once all that fun is done, uh, our distillery itself, we're, we're sort of smack dab in the middle of uh, looking for a new, uh, we're working on a new project where we're, we're doing a wine finish. We're continuing a wine finish um, for, for one of our whiskeys and uh, deciding which winery around Virginia uh, is going to be the one that we're going to choose for oh, one of yeah. one of our uh, for one of our whiskeys. So so that's a really fun, fun project. And then we've also just launched this new uh, blend, this Hunter and Scott bourbon, which we're just so excited about. And again, it's it's because we can't uh, we can't keep this puppy in stock that we're we're working so hard to just uh, reach new states and and other palates and other people. So um, yeah, we're we're schlepping that thing all around the country and and uh, uh, in Germany and like I said, Australia and the UK and um, it's you know it, that's exciting broadening out where it is that reservoir is is reaching and mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and and touching people. So so that's a lot of fun. So you did you mentioned a, a wine finish? Have you picked a wine type, or are yeah, you still well, worrying? Okay, we have a, a series that we've been doing for a few years, which is so successful. Where it was uh, um, our hundred percent corn was our bourbon, um, which we finished in a red wine cask, and it was a, it happened to have been a uh, a Burgundy Grand Cru cask. And uh, we had two different types of wines that we were finishing in. One was a Merlot that had actually freshly breaded. So Bredonomyces is a, a specific kind of uh, yeast fungus that you don't want in a, in a winery, but sometimes it can actually taste really good on the palate. I don't know, some people are, are into the barnyard funk and whatnot. I happen to think it tastes great. It's not, not for every person, but it worked mm -hmm. so beautifully with our, our, uh, our bourbon. And then we also had uh, a meritage that we uh, aged that bourbon in as well, or just finished the bourbon in as well. Uh, and so now we're working with another winery, uh, a local winery in Virginia, which is just so exciting. And they have uh, so many interesting grapes. And we had a, a whole team of us go out to the winery a couple of days ago just to go through all the different wines and, and pair them with some of our whiskeys to see what sings, right? What, what mm -hmm. is it that, that really uh, um, manifests beautifully in a glass that, you know, might be completely different substances when you have them separately on their own? It's kind of refreshing to go back and drink wine. I hadn't had a good quantity of wine in a while. And, um, at a Christmas party, my, my company is based out of North Carolina and there was a local winery. We had a Christmas party there and they bring out, you know, wine and, and I'm drinking through it and I'm used to trying to like pace myself cause I'm at a whiskey thing. Right. And so you're drinking 80, 90, hundred proof whiskey or whatever. And they bring out wine and you know, one glass, two glass, three glasses. And I'm like, it's, I don't understand what's going. Usually I need to like slow down by now and you just sort of forget about it. But I, I love, um, big red wines. And so this, mm -hmm. this all sounds super, Super fantastic. Um, Me too. Love the the big and the bold. I have a Neanderthal tongue. I had a really hard time uh, working my way through Ireland. Uh, you know, 
like 15 years back and 10 years back, not so much anymore because um, things have definitely changed in Ireland. But but back then, you know, everything is triple distilled. And mm-hmm. I, I swear, my tongue is just so, so Neanderthal. I need something to clobber me over to the head to be like, wow, the flavors are just blossoming and appearing. And, and I had lots and lots of barkeeps who said, you just have to search for it a little bit harder, <laughs> search for mm-hmm. the flavor. It's very sophisticated. Uh, but you know, I, I do like Irish whiskey. Just it requires a very sophisticated palate, I think. Yeah, I don't know that I have that degree of sophistication either. I usually, if it's a lighter spirit, like a, a lower proof spirit, I'm going to look for like multiple casks because I need something to happen to it pretty regularly. And that's what that's why I picked this Macallan Double Oak is because I know you know Macallan's got a good flavor, but I, I want something that's got s- s- some more bite to it. Um, you mentioned that every, you said this, this exact statement, every time I write a book, right? So you've done this multiple times. What does your writing process look like? Um, it's usually one where I drive out most family members from the house. It's, it's not very pretty. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a rough process. I, and I am extraordinarily apologetic through most of it. A lot of anxiety, <laughs> a lot of nighttime working, a lot of whiskey I go through. Uh, yeah. Like I mentioned before, I'm pretty sure my liver is just toast. Um, but you know, the whiskey is a companion at my elbow and it sets the mood and it, it creates this atmosphere, whatever, if, if I'm writing a middle grade story or a young adult historical fiction or something contemporary and humorous or fantasy, it doesn't matter. Somehow whiskey sets the mood for me to become really creative and to sort of, you know, tap into that muse and just sort of ask for wherever he or she is just to land on my shoulder and start to, um, crack open some, some vein of, of, of creativity. So I, I'm very grateful to have that. So whiskey is part of that process. Absolutely. But it is a long, long, many multi-month slog of creating. So, you know, in, in the whole writing process, you've got people who are pantsers or plotters and uh, the, 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 the plotters are people who think through an entire story, the beginning, the middle of the end before, you know, they, they actually bullet point out everything that's mm-hmm. going to happen, all the character development and whatnot. They know before they start writing any dialogue, exactly what's going to happen nose to tail. And a pantser is somebody. So Stephen King describes a pantser like an, uh, like an archeologist, someone who just comes across a, a big mound of dirt with a small brush and you just keep, keep wiping away the dirt bit by bit until suddenly a bone appears and then Mm -hmm. another one. And then it starts to take shape and then you have a skull and then you see this whole body emerge. And that's what pantsing is. You just start writing and think, oh, I'm actually writing the ending of the book before I'm writing the beginning of the book. But I'm a pantser, so I just never know what's going to happen. I sit down with no ideas and no preconceived notions and put pen to paper and vomit it all out on page. And then I apologize to an editor much, much later on. I'm like, so sorry. <laughs> this is what we have to work with. <laughs> this is, so I have a, a friend that recently published, he, he did three books and on his third, he did his final release. It was a trilogy series that he did. And, and on his third, he had a release party and we go to it and he, you know, just standing there drinking whiskey and talking. And he's very much in the same place where he's like, he, he had a loose idea of what he wanted the story to be. And he said that and started writing it. And he said, a lot of times it takes a turn that I didn't expect it to, because as I'm writing, Oh, here it is now. This is, this is sort of what happened. And 
you know, I, I mentioned earlier, my, my daughter's doing a young adult, young author's camp right now because she's super into writing. And she, um, when she wrote her first book, you know, we're going to use the, the term here. Um, she's, it was during the pandemic and she's, you know, school from home and she's like, I'm going to write this book. And I'm like, cool, but I know how to make this into a lesson. Like you have to type it. You have to type all of it because she's been handwriting. You know, she was nine years old at the time, 10 years old, at the time, nine, she was nine. And so, you know, typing wasn't a big thing for her. Everything was handwritten. I was like, you have to type it because I want you to learn how to type because that's a thing that not a lot of kids do. And I was like, so you're going to write your outline or whatever. She's like, no, I'm just gonna start writing the story. And my brain didn't handle that because I am very much by the nature of the things that I do. I'm very much a planner and I have to have to have to have, to have an outline to begin with. Like I, I need to know at least so I don't lose a thought because that's the other thing. Like my brain is super flighty. And so if I don't put down the thought, I'm going to lose it. And then that might've been a good idea that I'll never, ever, ever have again. Oh, I know that feeling. And she was like, Nope, I'm just going to write it. And so she sat down and she wrote her book in the end. And that, that was the end of it. And it broke my brain entirely. So <laughs> kudos to you for being able to do that, especially at the, at that length, you know, cause she's only looking at you know, like 19 or 20 pages. You're looking at, you know, three or four hundred pages to, to be able to, to connect it end to end. Yeah, no, it's different for everybody. And I do think that one has to decide one's process. Uh, and and it's not a bad idea to to try both of them out to see which one feels most comfortable, which one you have most success with. Uh, but, you know, if you don't try the other one, you'll never know if you're good at it or you hate it or it really resonates with you and you might almost made a mistake. Um, but I, I, I do think that that uh, that, you know, the best advice you could give to young people who are looking to become writers is to um, be bold, right? And I don't mean as in their writing, I mean as in with life, like do those things that take the grits and the guts, the things that you're afraid of, the things that scare you slightly. I'm not saying live a risky life, I'm saying live a <laughs> risk-filled life in a right. very you know safe kind of way, because then, then you have things to write about. Yeah. And you just can't take other people's ideas or rely on your brain to you know, generate some sort of spark of creativity all the time. Sometimes you have to look back and say, what happened to me today? That has got to be part of a story and I can manipulate that into a character or into a chapter. So yeah, always, always, always just be bold. Yep. So I'm writing that one down because the, the synopsis there is that a life with chances is not the same as a risky life. And that's, that's what you're really after. It's a life where you take some chances and do some things. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I also, when, when I would visit uh, schools uh, with, with mostly middle schools and whatnot, I, I had an entire uh, talk that I did, which was um, all about failure. And I, mm -hmm. I think, you know, a, a lot of kids get those, uh, those talks from, from visiting authors and whatnot. It's really important. I used to uh, describe because I knew that there were going to be a good chunk of kids who would never read my book if I was coming to their classroom, not be interested in what I had to write mm -hmm. or what I did write or the stories I was writing. Um, but they had to be interested in what I said as I sat in front of them or I stood in front of them. And so I used NASA as the example of how to fail and to mm -hmm. fail again in, in a big, extraordinary way. But if they didn't fail, they didn't learn. And if they didn't learn, they wouldn't pick themselves up again and do something absolutely magnificent, right? To make these massive leaps forward for mankind. And I, I can't help but be inspired by people like that who 
know that there's so much at stake, right? So much money and potentially lives at stake and their whole careers. And yet they still, they do that stuff that scares them because they mm-hmm. can't not do it. It's yeah. And then in the, in the software industry where I work, we have this, this phrase, it's called fail fast. And the intent is to get out there and try and fail as quickly as you can, because we, we learn far more from our failures than we do from our successes. You know, Edison learned one way to make a light bulb and about, I think they said 1700 ways not to, right. (laughs) But out of those other 1700 came a number of other patents and other pieces of technology and other ways of doing things. And so, you know, at least when I was growing up, failure was, was viewed as a really, really negative thing. And I think some of that story is starting to change is that through failure comes learning. And that's what, you know, my wife's an educator. She tries to do that. We try to instill that in our own children because, I failed at so many things. My last job interview, I actually had to you know, tell a number of stories of like places where I failed, but I learned really, really strong lessons that helped me be successful in my particular industry. And, you know, it's usually not a good place to start with. Like, let me tell you about a time that I once failed, right? Like that's not, you don't want to tell your potential employer that, but. Well, you know, that might land you the job. I mean, there, you know, that might be the thing that, that <laughs> right. really makes you stick out from other people is that, you know, where your weaknesses are, where that, that chink in your chain. And, uh, and I, I think, you know, if they're a smart, smart employer, they're, they're going to snap you up right there. Yep. All right. I, I don't want to cut you off, but I have to. There's a storm that's kicking up outside and I am liable <laughs> to lose Internet at any given time. So I gotcha. I'm going to I'm going to send you out. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, book releases tomorrow. It's on all major platforms. But where's the place where they need to go to buy it that is the most financially beneficial for you? Oh, well, uh, one of two places. So you can go to ReservoirDistillery.com and we have it for sale right there. Or you can go to your local bookstore and keep it afloat. All those indie bookstores are so, so important to us as authors and as readers. So, yeah, go out to your local community bookstore and show them some love. Perfect. And I I read a lot. My, my family reads a lot. Um, my daughter is reading one of your young adult novels right now. Uh, as soon as as soon as I got this one, I started reading it, and I started, you know, I'm looking to everything else you've written. I'm like, I'm gonna buy one of these and let her um, give it a shot because she's a voracious reader as well. Um, it's a very very well written book. Super you. enjoyable. Thank um, you. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I've read a lot of whiskey books. You know, like this this these shelves the top half are whiskey. The bottom half is books. And a lot of them are whiskey books. And there's a lot of my kind of guy, just boring stuff out there in the, the whiskey author verse. And this is not one of them. So congratulations on a fantastic book. It should uh, sell thousands of copies, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds well, from of your, of your lips to God's ears, John, thank you so much. I really hope so. <laughs> yeah. Th- thank you for joining me. Thanks for tuning in for this offering of the embellished podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave me a review on whatever platform that you're consuming this on. Leave a comment if possible. Hit me up on social media at Twitter or Instagram using embellished pod. Give me a follow so you can keep up with what's going on here and any future uh, episodes or interviews that are going to happen. I can also be found at www.embellishpod.com. All of my links, accounts, contact details, all of that's there. I'll be back again next week with another new offering for you. So until then, cheers and thanks for hanging out.